Hey, everyone. So good to see you. Thanks for coming out. Everybody warm enough? Good. Good. What a blessing to live in Southern California. So glad you're here. Thanks for joining us uh, online and uh, sitting, hopefully, in your comfortable living room, uh, joining us for worship today. We're going to spend uh, some time in God's Word together. So would you take just a minute and pray with me uh, about our time in God's Word? Let's ask for the Spirit's help here. Father, we, uh, especially after the encouragement from last Sunday, Lord, we just have a renewed faith and hunger and desire for your word. And your word, the words that you've given us, Lord, they're spirit and they're life and they're, they're timely. And we pray that your spirit would work in and through your word uh, in, in unique ways, in particular ways, uh, let, that they would find their mark in our hearts this afternoon, speaking to us currently here in Pasadena this afternoon on this particular day, that your, your, your words would open up fresh light and understanding and, and help us to see more of your glory and more of your purposes. Lord, Lord, lead us in and through the reading and the teaching of your word, that, that we would go home changed affected that, that we would all have this sense in our, in our hearts that says the Lord met us the Lord spoke to us the, the the simple reading of the word and the preaching of the word what what is unimpressive and yet powerful as your spirit works in and through it so we open wide our hearts now together to receive from this beautiful work of your spirit in Jesus name amen amen our text this afternoon is going to be Jeremiah chapter 29, so if you have a Bible or a device and you want to turn there, I'm going to suppose that every one of you has had a situation where you felt out of place. You found yourself in a situation where it's like, I don't feel like I belong here. This is awkward. Picture me at a heavy metal concert, out of place. What am I doing here? None of this makes sense to me. Uh, I don't know why I'm here. Maybe you, you moved into a neighborhood, and you're starting to get a feel for what's going on around you, and maybe after the 10th political campaign sign you've seen in front lawns, you've realized, hmm, not everybody sees things the way I do here. Maybe you started a new job, and you're trying to tune in to the corporate culture of this new place, and you're kind of like, wow, this is, this is just very strange. This is very different for me. I'm not, I'm not used to doing things like this. I'm not sure I fit here. Maybe you're visiting a church and trying to find a new church home, and you walk in, and you look around, and you wonder, is, is anybody here like me? Will I fit here? Will this, will this work? And the, and the challenge is we've all experienced this, and some experienced it in minor ways. There's probably a handful of people in the world that, that never feel this way. They're so secure. They're so tough. They're so resilient. They don't even know what I'm talking about. But, but most of us have had at least situations. Some of us, it's become somewhat of a, almost a life-dominating issue that just tends to plague us, just hard to feel comfortable, feeling like we're in the right place at the right time. The, the challenge with, 
with feeling. This is such a powerful force in our soul. And there's a couple impulses that come when we feel out of place. One is, get the heck out of here as soon as possible. Just get out. I don't want to be here. I don't feel comfortable here. I need to get out of here. And, and the other is a little more subtle, but we tend to resort at times to, well, let's, let's despise, let's resent, let's complain, let, let's, let's talk about how bad and how wrong this environment is to sort of justify this feeling that I have that I don't quite fit in. And, and, and both of these impulses are really a, a, a poor response to this. Now, the text that we're going to look at, Jeremiah chapter 29, is where Jeremiah writes a letter to a group of people that feel completely out of place. They're in, in such a strange environment. They are so uncomfortable. They're so not at home where they are. And Jeremiah speaks. In fact, God speaks into their lives in a situation like that. So if you've ever felt like you don't belong, if you've ever found yourself in a place where it's like, I don't fit in here, I want you to know you can already at least a little bit relate to the people receiving this letter. And I trust and my prayer is that you will hear God speak in and through this letter and speak to that very tender spot in your soul and speak words of encouragement and help for you. What we're going to see in this letter that while these people feel very displaced, very out of place, what we're going to discover and see is that that was actually God who placed them there, and we're going to get a glimpse as to why God placed them there. The answers here is actually a bit surprising, for in this letter, we have, surprisingly, some of the most comforting words in all of Scripture. It's going to be a, a wonderfully familiar verse that we're going to read in just a minute, some of the most comforting phrases in all of scripture and then there's going to be some unexpected instructions about how to live in situations where you feel out of place there's going to sort of realign our hearts reposition us and reorder our lives that are going to move us away from the plans that we have for our lives and the pursuit of comfort we have for our lives and move us into the plans and purposes that God has for our lives. Well, let's read the section together. I'm in Jeremiah chapter 29. We'll read 14 verses here. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. 
Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. I want to break it down simply and just list for us three comforts about God and three instructions that he gives. Here's the context. Three comforts when you find yourself living in Babylon. When you find yourself out of place, misplaced, in exile, away from home, not at home, not comfortable. When you're in those places, three words of comfort about God. First, God is sovereign over human affairs. Welcome to Sovereign Grace Church. We love to talk about the sovereignty of God. We believe in the sovereignty of God. God is in control of all the details. The word of the Lord comes through Jeremiah, and he says, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. Can you imagine hearing those words? Everything is wrong. Everything is wrong in the world. Everything is wrong in my life. I am not where I'm supposed to be. I feel out of place. I'm uncomfortable. Strange people, strange language, strange food, strange customs, not at home, not comfortable. And here comes the Lord. I sent you here. Can you imagine how those words must have landed on their hearts, on their ears? These are the kinds of times when we tend to question God's goodness or his power or certainly his love for us. The statement seems to give us initially more evidence that God is not for us as opposed to anything else. How could I be in a situation where everything around me is wrong? It doesn't fit. I don't fit. I don't understand it. I don't like being here. And yet here God says, and I sent you. I sent you here. What's interesting and what I'm excited about because we've been studying through the book of Jeremiah, is Jeremiah is your, your quintessential gloom and doom preacher. Fire and brimstone, judgment of God. But when we get to this section, this final strip, and we'll probably be in Jeremiah just for the month of January, and we'll finish this up. But at this section of the book, the tone changes. 
praise God. <laughs> Things turned around a little bit. All of a sudden, the, the, the message and the tone all of a sudden feels different. The message you would have expected in reading through Jeremiah to get to this point, now you're exiled. He's been talking for almost two decades. He has been preaching this message. Repent, return to God, or God is going to throw you out and remove you and set you up in Babylon. So repent and turn, and they would not, and they would not, and they would not. And now finally it has happened, and they find themselves in Babylon. You would have thought, Jeremiah would write a letter saying, I told you so. You know, you really screwed up. And if you would have listened to me, none of this would have happened. Instead, here's the message. I sent you, and I've got a plan for you. You're exactly where I want you to be. As Rosario Butterfield wrote in her book the gospel comes with a house key the phrase god never gets the address wrong i want you to know god does not have the address wrong for you he knows exactly where you are and he's got you exactly where he wants you knowing that god designed it but at the same time recognizing that everything is quite lousy everything is bad, uh, doesn't necessarily comfort us just yet. In fact, that's a little bit of a struggle for our soul. You mean everything, I, there's nothing about this that I like, and yet God is saying, I've put you here. But the second point about God is not that he's just sovereign, but that his plans are always ultimately good for his people. This makes the difference. This is how things can be presently bad but knowing that God says, here, I have plans for you, not for evil, but for good. Then all of a sudden, God's control over everything, his providence over everything, the fact that God is saying, I'm the one who sent you here, takes on a different tone and a different light. And now trust can begin to form. He says, I have plans for your welfare. Our translation uses the word welfare. Another translation would say peace. And if you're familiar at all, if you, if you know one Hebrew word in the world, you'd be familiar with the word shalom. And that's the word that we're talking about here. Philip Ryken writes about shalom, giving us some understanding. He says it's this comprehensive peace. And he quotes Clifford Green, and he says, more than an absence of conflict and death, this rich term fills out the word community by embracing well-being, contentment, wholeness, health, prosperity, safety, and rest. Riken sums it up and says, shalom means order, harmony, happiness. It means that all is right with the city. Everything is right where we are and how we are with the Lord. That's shalom. That's this all-encompassing kind of peace and welfare and well-being in every aspect of life. So how can things seem so bad? And God mean things for so much good because God is able to work all things for good. An amazing thing about this sovereign God. He can take the worst of situations. He can take the hardest of tragedies. He can take the most difficult setback. And even that, that slow, long trial that you are in the middle of right now, you're saying, why is this taking so long? God can take even that 
and say, I mean for good with this. I can take these things. I can take the good and the bad and the ugly, and I know how to work all these circumstances together, and I know how to formulate them into my plan for your life so that I can mean for your good. I can produce good in your life. I can bring you to a place of peace and well-being because God is able to do that. You see, Babylon was not a good city. Babylon in the Bible is the, is, the, is the iconic, quintessential evil city. I mean, it just uses that term throughout all the way to the book of Revelation. If you say, when I say the city of Babylon, there should be ominous music in the background. It's the evil, wicked city. We need some help here. We need some production going on here where you could just feel it and realize when you hear Babylon, you think that's where all the bad people live. That's where all the bad things happen. The crime rates are bad. The, the prices are astronomical. Everything's wrong with it. The economy stinks. It's just wicked and evil. You're never safe in Babylon. It's the bad place to be, but it was the right city for them to be in because God sent them in to Babylon. This is a snapshot, really, of the larger picture. This is, this is a unique situation in Israel's history, but not irrelevant for us. Very applicable, very relevant. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Christians, you and me, New Testament Christians, we're referred to as exiles. Just belonging to Christ, every Christian has to embrace some aspect of not belonging, not fitting in, not quite home. It is the nature of belonging to Christ. It is another kingdom. It is a city to come. It is a city that we look to and we hope for and we strive for. In the meantime, we live in the bad city, in Babylon, in the wicked city, in the city of man. And that is the nature of Christianity. And that is hard for us if that's all we see. Here's the good news. God sent you there. God placed us there. That's his plan. When we struggle with this reality, we stumble in a couple of ways. We fall one way or the other. On the one hand, we assimilate and we become like the city. On the other hand, we reject the city and we seclude ourselves from it. And both those responses lead us actually into our greatest misery. We think we're sparing ourselves the trouble. We think we're avoiding the trouble. And yet it's not at all the plan and the purposes of God. And so we end up miserable. These people that we're reading about, they were in Jerusalem. They did not see their purpose and their mission. And they assimilated into all the surrounding cultures. That's why they're now in Babylon. It didn't work for their welfare. We'll see more why in just a couple minutes. The point up to this point is, look, we cannot only live for God in an ungodly place. God actually calls us to live in ungodly places for our good, for his glory. This is the plan. You can't avoid it. You don't want to assimilate into it. You need to realize God sent you. 
God sent us. God placed us here. We're here. This family, this local church is here for a reason because God sent us into this city, into this place. And he did this. Why? Because the third point, the comforting truth about God is that God is a missionary God. As it turns out, God, they were not merely captives. They were actually missionaries sent by God. No doubt while they were there, they felt abandoned. They felt condemned. They felt lousy, but they were actually sent by God. And here the message shifts from their sins and their failures to God's purposes and God's plans and God's mission. The situation gives us a little bit of a shadow of the cross and the way the gospel works. You see, they were there because of God's judgment. Once God's judgment landed and fell and began to take effect, now God's demeanor towards them seems to have changed. Now you're no longer guilty sinners who need to repent and turn, otherwise I'm going to exile you. Now all of a sudden they're exiled, the judgment has come, and now it's like, okay, my chosen ones, my missionaries, my emissaries, my ones that I've sent out to bring my grace into the city of Babylon. And isn't that like the gospel? Where the law comes and, and condemns us and we feel its condemnation and we sense the guilt that we have before a holy God, but we look to the cross and we look to the gospel and we see the grace of God and all of a sudden, oh, oh, now all of a sudden family inside, no longer outsider, now accepted, now beloved with the saints, now belonging to the family because the blood of Christ washed us clean. The judgment of God came and not on us, but on him so that we could be called sons and daughters of God. Did you realize that God had this missionary purpose from the very beginning? It's fun to trace this theme throughout the Bible all the way back to Abraham. And his descendant would be the seed that would be the blessing to every nation. And Isaiah prophesies about how the house of the Lord is going to be the, the highest mountain so that all nations will come flowing to it. And, of course, Jesus making that wonderful statement that when he would be lifted up, that he would draw all men to himself. And Jesus told to his disciples and to us as well, now we are that city. <laughs> You're the city now. You're the city set up on a hill. Now I have plans for you. The earlier call to to repentance in the previous chapters of Jeremiah now begins to take on a little bit deeper meaning, a little bit fuller understanding. I needed you to repent because I wanted to use you. I wanted my grace to work in you and through you to touch other people's lives, but you were so caught up in pleasing yourselves and you wouldn't turn to me and you forsook my covenant. It became, in a sense, useless in my hands. I couldn't use you like that, so I'm going to send you into Babylon. I want you to see and I want you to understand what my purpose is and what I'm doing in your life. I'm working in you so that I can work through you. My plan is to reach people, reach the nations. That's the goal. So a quick summary about the things that we know about God. He's sovereign over the times and places that we live. That he takes both the good and the bad, and he uses those in plans for good for our lives. And his grace is at work that works in us as part of God's ongoing mission 
in the world. Okay, These are the theological truths that we need to understand. Now we can move on to the practical instruction, but not before. This is how it works. This is how you need to read your Bible. This is how you need to understand when you, when you read through the text. Get your theological bearings lined up first. Make sure you understand who is God, what is God saying, what is true about God, and then we can start, talk about application, how to live it out, how to build on it. Don't put the cart before the horse. First God. Then let's talk about how do we respond to God. What does this produce in our lives and how can we grow from here and how can we live this out? This is why when Paul writes in the New Testament, you see in Timothy chapter 2, he's talking about, well, you need to live this way so that you don't defile the Word of God. Oh, and you need to live this way so that you actually adorn the Word of God. You see, the, the theology is laid down first. The foundation of who God is, the truths about God, these are the things laid down. And now a lifestyle comes out of that that adorns it, that honors it, that reflects it, that draws people's attention to it. So that's how it works. And so we move ahead now to three instructions for living in Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat the fruit. Build a house. Live in it. Plant a garden eat from it. In other words, what's happening here is Jeremiah saying, look, this is not a short-term missions trip. Settle in for the long haul. This is going to be for a while. This is going to take some time. This was the conflict. In fact, this is what prompted the letter. There were false prophets stepping in and saying, uh, don't worry, don't settle in. This will be over before you know it. One guy stood up and said, I declare in two years Babylon is going to fall. You'll all be fine. You'll be back home in no time. Don't worry about it. And when Jeremiah heard this, he says, I better write a letter because it's not true. And he writes a letter and says it's going to be 70 years. So listen, folks, find yourself a place to live. Settle in. Start planting some vegetables and fruit and eat from it. You're going to, you're going to be here for a while. I need you here for longer. I want you here for longer. Why talk about homes? Because hospitality is the gospel key. Hospitality is crucial. I referred to Rosario Butterfield. She wrote that wonderful book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, around this very idea that, that hospitality is, is a key means of reaching people with the gospel. I wonder sometimes if in our thinking and we think about evangelism, we've got a, a bit of a, an outdated view of evangelism that means a meeting, a rally, a special meeting or a conversation on the, on, on the sidewalk. And, and that, that, that might well and good, but certainly limited. And it works well in a, in a, in a Christian but backslidden context. Backslidden Christians walking around need a reminder. They need a Billy Graham to, to shake you up and say, you know, come back to Jesus. Oh, yes, I know. I know. I know all about that. And I've been off. Folks, we live in a post-Christian society. And if you've had conversations with people, you know, you can't just go around and say, well, the Bible says this. Why are you telling me what the Bible says? I don't, what, what Bible? I don't believe any of that. Evangelism looks very different today. And when you move into Babylon, you don't 
you know, you don't quote the Hebrew scriptures to them. Just get a house. <laughs> get a house. Start, start using your home. We had this story of God's grace that we celebrated just recently with Melanie Berger. A 10-year story of hospitality. A neighbor across the street. 10 years of relationship. And we see what many of us would have thought the least likely convert on the block comes to know the Lord because of hospitality being the key. Okay, so relax. This is not about home ownership, okay? We don't want to push that detail too far. The point is simply this. Use your home, your apartment, your dorm room as a tool in God's mission. I don't care if you've got a studio, apartment, it doesn't make any difference. It's not about the square footage. It's not about the decor. It's about a welcoming atmosphere. It's about a disposition that says, come in and sit at my table and share a meal with me because I care about you. That makes the difference. Hospitality is supposed to be the hallmark for God's people. One that I believe God needs to revive even more in our lives. Because this is going to be a key to reaching people in a post-Christian society. The one we live in. Like it or not. Establish a home. Plant a garden. Make a meal. Invite a neighbor in. Enter into the plans the Lord has for you. Look. Invite people to church. I love it when, when people invite people to church. I think that's great. But you know some of the people that you're interacting with. This might not be the first stop for someone that you're interacting with about who the Lord is. Your home is an excellent first stop. First starting point, touch point for the gospel. Use your home for God's glory. Secondly, get married and have kids. There it is. Just saying. God said it. Get married. Have children. Look, I don't want to press the detail again too hard. I don't want to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Apostle Paul who made a case that being unmarried can be completely legitimate if it's for the kingdom. That's all well and good. But here's the reality. The norm is people get married. And it's a good thing. This is a God-given institution that we should embrace, especially because Christian marriages display the gospel. This is what they're designed to do. We should not underestimate the power of healthy marriages and healthy homes. Do you see what's happening here? God sends these people into the worst city on the planet and says, you're going to be my missionaries there. Now, you would think we, we would need some intense, multiple semesters of evangelistic training and outreach in order to be equipped to go into this context. And here's what he says. Get a home, get a wife, have some kids. There's the plan. Here's how we're going to do it. Here's how we're going to change Babylon. Here's going to reach people for the gospel. I came across... Uh, Linda Waite, who wrote a book, A Case for Marriage, and observed, look, listen, this is just 
free on the side. Look, the evidence of four decades of research is surprisingly clear. A good marriage is both men's and women's best bet for living a long and healthy life. The facts are in. There's the science. You want the science? Here it is. They tend to live longer. They're physically healthier. They're mentally healthier. They're happier. They recover from illnesses quicker. They're more successful. They take better care of themselves, and they avoid risky behavior. There you go. What a good reason to get yourself married. Most importantly, marriage displays a picture of the gospel. And of course, this is not always in people's minds, but it has this profound effect. Could you just imagine with me for a minute, imagine a society where what, what the scriptures teach about marriage would be adhered to by the entire society. Just dream with me a little bit. Okay? No sex outside of, of a marriage between a man and a woman. People are married, husbands who genuinely cherish, care for, provide, and protect their wives. Wives that love, respect, and seek to be a, a team player and a helper with their husbands in these marriages. What, what would a society be like if those were the criteria for how we lived our lives? Can you imagine? I wonder what the sex trafficking and porn industry would look like if this were the norm, if this is how we lived, if we were all committed to a society that lived this way. No unfaithfulness in marriage. So all the heartache that has come to all the people through unfaithfulness in marriage wouldn't happen, wouldn't exist. Children would have the advantage of growing up in loving households with healthy, modeled marriages of manhood and womanhood. Could you even imagine how this would change the world that we live in? Listen, husbands and wives, give attention to pursuing godly marriages. We're not there yet. Don't assume. We can, we can grow more. We can, we can continue on this, and we need to. We help God's kingdom into our society when we pursue healthy, godly marriages. Men, take the point. Step up. Pursue. Are you cherishing your wife? Are you loving your wife? Are you out for her good to protect and care? Do you pray for her? I think it's a little humorous that God says, no, these are the kinds of things that equip you for Babylon. This is how we're going to do it. This is how God is going to accomplish what he wants to do. Have children. Again, I, I, I have to qualify each time. Okay, not pressing the issue too hard. Not everybody has children. Not everybody can have children. Not everybody should have lots of children. I get it, but here it is. Have kids. Well-loved, well-trained children turn out to be the best gift to a society's future. You can comment on social media 24 hours of every day and you will have not near the impact on a society than you will by raising godly children. This is a contribution 
that the church is meant to make. There are so many reasons for the wrongs in a society that might require a whole array of various solutions at the outset. But if you want to talk about what is the thing that we can do that will be most effective for the good of society is to cultivate God-honoring marriages and raise children who know the Lord. Third point, seek and pray for the welfare of the city. Again, welfare, shalom. Can you imagine? This is our ambition. We are going to seek and we're going to pray to the Lord for the shalom of Pasadena, of L.A. County, of Southern California. This is going to become our mission as a church for this comprehensive peace, this well-being, this contentment, this wholeness, this health, this prosperity, this safety, this rest. We are going to strive for everything to be right in the city that God has sent us to. We're not here to use the city for our personal gain. We're not here to reject the city for all its wrongs and all its shortcomings and all its failures. Instead, we've been sent by God, called by God to invest ourselves in the welfare of this city. This means getting involved in anything and everything that comes to mind that helps the welfare of the city. Know your neighbors. Help them when they need it. Check in on the elderly in your neighborhood. Make meals at Union Station on Saturday night with the team. Volunteer at a local school. Find ways to help the poor. Stand against injustices. Our lives as Christians should not reflect the always complaining, always opposing, always unwilling to cooperate, but rather the willing help and desire for what is good for the whole. The church, the Christians, should be first in line when it comes to what's good for our society and pray. Do you ever struggle or wonder what to pray for? Let me tell you a surefire way of filling up your prayer list. Get to know some people around you. Meet your neighbors. Reach out and touch some lives. Find out who's, who's going through what, who's doing what. You want your prayer list to, to fill up immediately to the brim. Just spend some time with other people. Invest yourself in their, in their lives. God makes this amazing statement. This is how you and I are going to come into, find, discover, experience our welfare. You imagine the, the irony of this. I thought I was here to find my place, to get my slice of the pie, to get my piece of the Southern California wealth. I was here for my education, to find my fortune, to do my thing, to find my place. And God is telling us, look, that is precisely the wrong way to get your welfare. You give yourself 
to the welfare of the city. And in so doing, you will find your welfare. We cannot fulfill this mission. We cannot find and discover our welfare if we live in fear or resentment that the city is always a threat to our identity as the people of God. They're out to get us. They're out to hurt us. No doubt there are forces at work that oppose Christianity. No surprise. But heads up, people of God. He who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. We have nothing to fear. If anything, we're the threat here. We're supposed to be the threat. We're supposed to bring the grace of God into the city. Not cower and hide. Not complain about what's wrong with the city. Step in. Invest ourselves for the good. Bring the grace of God. If we heed this letter, if we apply it well to our lives, we're not going to lose our identity, folks. We're going to find it like we've never known it before. Our lives will be occupied with better things. Does your phone tell you how many hours you spent on your phone? Do you get a little report, a little update? And have you ever looked at that and been a little bit surprised and maybe a little embarrassed? How much? I, what? That can't be right. We're missionaries. God sent us. Our lives should be occupied with better things. We'll be praying more deeply. The needs are going to be real. You're going to know them. They're going to be next to you. They're going to be around you. You're going to care for these people, so you're going to feel their pain in, in, in unique, personal ways. So your prayer life is, is, is going to deepen, and we're going to know God more intimately because we're now entering into his purpose, entering into his plans, participating in what God is doing. Oh, and best of all, we're going to see God's grace at work in people's lives. Melanie was just one first early story for us. May there be a thousand other Melanie Berger stories in our future, in 2021, in this year. Well, let me invite the worship team to come on up. We're, we're nearly done. I am convinced and I'm hopeful that God is at work using this pandemic to bring about some changes in each of our lives. I shared this with you earlier. I had grand ideas about revival happening back in the spring. It's all taking much longer than I thought. And yet, God is sovereign. He not only never gets the address wrong, he never gets the timing wrong either. He knows precisely what he's doing. I think it's fair enough to say that in speaking generally that prior to the pandemic, we were too busy with too many of the wrong things. We spent too much time on things that mattered less pandemic shuts everything down, sort of resets life. There's lots of margin in life for most of us now. 
wonderful little book from Eugene Peterson. He says this, listen, the, the aim of the person of faith is not to be as comfortable as possible, to but to live as deeply and thoroughly as possible, to deal with the reality of life and discover truth and create beauty and act out love. There's so many things wrong with California, I know. Southern California in particular. Lots of things are messed up here. I don't know if you've ever left California. I came from the Midwest. I could tell you what they all think of us here in Southern California. It's not good. It's not flattering. They think we're quite strange and quite weird and off our nut completely. But God sent us here. This is our Babylon. This is our city. This is where God has brought us. And to go back to Eugene Peterson, he, he writes this. He says, this, this is what our posture ought to be. I will do my best with what is here. Far more important than the climate of this place, the economics of this place, the neighbors of this place, is the God of this place. God is here with me. What I am experiencing right now is on ground that was created by him and with people whom he loves. It is just as possible to live out the will of God here as any place else. And God wants us to live it out here. This is our city to reach. In fact, as Jesus told us now, we are that city. The city to reach the city. We're to be that people. We're to be that city set on a hill. Folks, do you sometimes feel out of place? Do you sometimes feel like a, a, a stranger in the wrong place, the wrong time, like you don't fit in? Oh, I'm sure there's some truth behind these feelings. But God tells us, hear the word of the Lord. Our feeling of displacement is actually part of his plan. I have sent you here, and not as a captive, but as a missionary. I've told you my testimony times before, but just again, briefly, a quick story. How I came to be here, that I could know the Lord. About 50 years ago, there was a couple that lived on Sanford Street in Zeeland, Michigan, June and Ethel Vrujink, and they were Christians. They didn't see themselves as captives. They saw themselves as missionaries. And so they went for a walk, and they offered my dad their lawnmower. And that began a friendship. And that God used to lead them to the Lord to bring the gospel into my household, where I heard the gospel. And God's grace came into my life and changed me. Can you imagine such a simple, such a small act of kindness changed the course for me for eternity. I wouldn't be standing here today. I wouldn't be a pastor. I wouldn't even know the Lord if it wasn't for that couple that said, I'm here for a purpose. God sent us here, and we're going to find that purpose, and we're going to reach out to those around me. Folks, it's the first message of a new year. Let's let this be our aim for this year. Let's commit ourselves afresh 
God has sent us here. God has called us. God is with us. God wants to use us. God wants to save people. God wants to change people's lives. And he wants to use you and he wants to use me in the process of doing it.